O Lord, as we come to Your Word, we ask for it to come forth in power, clarity, and conviction. We pray, O Lord, that You would teach us, that You would instruct us with Your Word, that You would feed us and nourish us with Your Word. We pray that we would hear our Good Shepherd calling to us to follow Him, and that by Your grace, by the Spirit working within us, we would obey and follow Him. Teach us, O Lord. Teach us to look to Christ. Teach us to hear Him. Teach us to follow Him. And grow us in His likeness as we study Your Word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, please turn to John chapter 17. We will be in John chapter 17, verses 11 and 12 today. It feels like it's been forever since we've been in John chapter 17, but back when we were studying it weekly, it probably felt like we were never going to get out of John chapter 17, so uh, there's a balance to be found there, right? But today we'll be continuing our study of John chapter 17, looking at verses 11 and 12. Uh, If you need a Bible, again, there are two Reformation study Bibles that are free out in the foyer if you don't have a study Bible. I could not encourage you more strongly to pick one up, uh, but we also have other Bibles, pew Bibles, if, uh, if you want to take one of those, if you don't have a Bible with you. So we'll be looking at John chapter 17, verses 11 and 12, as we continue our study of John today. You know, as I was preparing this lesson, I was reminded of a time when there was a young father who took his family to SeaWorld on vacation uh, in San Diego, California. And despite his children both being very young, they very much enjoyed seeing all the the sea life, seeing all the whales and the dolphins and the sharks and all those things, all the things that you can that you can only see at Sea World unless you're actually out in the ocean. Uh, there they would be uh, in the presence of these you know giant sea creatures that would be something to, to greatly fear uh, if they encountered them in the wild, and yet they would be completely safe and, and wouldn't have a concern in the world standing right there in their presence. But there was one exception. The park had a tank that was filled with sharks, uh, several different species of sharks, dangerous sharks, obviously. And while it was possible to go down a flight of stairs to observe them at the, the level of the aquarium, there was another place where you could see the sharks, and that is from above where the tank was open at the top, and you were free to stare down into the shark tank. And this father as he held his son and looked down through the open top, suddenly had a realization that absolutely terrified him, that being that the only thing that was keeping his son from falling into the shark tank was the fact that his arms were wrapped securely around the child. And this realization caused the father to hold his son a little bit more firmly and to go downstairs and look at the sharks from the aquarium level instead. Now, if you haven't already guessed, that was me. Uh, That father was me over 20 years ago now. Uh, That moment that I had that realization has stuck with me all of these years. The truth is that that child, my son, was in the safest place in the world even while he was above a shark tank. He wasn't safe because he was holding on firmly to me. He was safe because I was bound and determined to keep him safe 
in my arms. This story illustrates a doctrine that we commonly refer to as uh, the perseverance of the saints. Um, I call it the preservation of the saints. That's probably not the term that you've uh, heard it referred to as. Uh, It's usually referred to as the perseverance of the saints. I've never been exactly fond of that title, uh, Perseverance of the Saints, just because somebody might read it and think, oh, this is my work to accomplish, when the point of that doctrine is that that work is accomplished by God. It's true that we will persevere, but the question is, why will we persevere? Why will we endure in the faith? And the answer is that we will persevere in our faith because God will preserve us in our faith. The Reformed understanding of salvation is that those who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, will not and indeed cannot ever lose their salvation if they are truly born again if they are truly born again. Those who appear to lose it, and there are plenty of those. There are plenty of people who publicly let the world know that they are walking away from the faith. But those who appear to lose it in truth never had it. The Apostle John addresses this phenomenon that we would refer to as apostasy in his first epistle, where he writes about a group of people called Gnostics. Uh, Gnostics were teaching some false theology, uh, and they apostatized the early church. They came in, they spread their false teachings around, and then they left the church, and the church was very confused by that. And so John says of these apostates, these Gnostic teachers, in 1 John 2.19, he said, "...they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us." But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. So those who walk away from the faith were never truly in the faith to begin with. All who are truly saved will persevere because God will preserve them. How do we know that God will preserve them? Well, because Scripture teaches it over and over again. Clearly, uh, in our study of John alone, we've seen this doctrine over and over and over again. Uh, We saw this doctrine taught in chapter 10, where Jesus was, uh, that's the chapter where He claims to be the Good Shepherd. Uh, Read that in light of Ezekiel 34, by the way. Uh, But we saw that in John chapter 10, Jesus was addressing the claim of His enemies that they did not believe because He wasn't teaching clearly enough. And Jesus counters this idea that the reason for their unbelief was because Jesus was somehow at fault or Jesus was not teaching clearly by saying this. He says in uh, chapter 10, verses 26 to 29, "...you do not believe because you are not of My sheep." My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So here in these just few verses, you find an intersection where there's, there's the, the hopeless depravity of man coming from one direction. There's God's sovereign electing grace in salvation coming from another direction. There's God's unconquerable plan to preserve His people. The plan that 
cannot be thwarted, that He will keep them, that they will persevere because He will preserve them. They will be in the Father's hand and nobody can snatch them out of the Father's hand. They will endure, therefore, until the end. We also saw this doctrine taught very clearly in chapter 6 where Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. He goes on to say, This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all He has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I and myself will raise Him up on the last day. And of course, then He goes on to say uh, in verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The thing that we keep seeing Jesus say over and over again in these verses is, I will raise him up on the last day. Everybody who comes to me, I will raise him up on the last day. Everybody the Father gives to me, I will raise him up on the last day. Nobody can come to me unless the Father draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Uh, In that passage, by the way, the the last day, raising him up on the last day, is referring to the fact that their salvation would endure, that they would be preserved in their faith, and that on the last day, Christ would complete their salvation. So today, we're going to look at this doctrine once again as we continue our study of Christ's high priestly prayer, which covers all of John chapter 17. And given the circumstances that Jesus was facing in this chapter, he's about to be arrested. And in only a matter of 12 hours or so, he's going to be crucified. It would be strange in light of the context here if we didn't also find this doctrine of the preservation of the saints in this chapter as well. Christ first in this chapter, we saw that he, he prayed to consecrate himself in verses 1 to 5. Then he turned his attention, uh, his thoughts to uh, the disciples in verses 6 to 19. And then for the rest of the chapter, he's going to pray for those who believe uh, as a result of the testimony of the disciples. Uh, this is all following the pattern that's outlined in Leviticus chapter 16. So he has spoken at this point between verses 6 to, uh, to 10. He spoke about the disciples up to this point. But now starting at verse 11, he offers his first petition for them. His prayer is that the Father would ensure the endurance of their faith. That the Father would keep them. That the Father would preserve them. That He would guard them. But the point of this passage is simply this, that all who are truly saved will persevere in the faith, not because of the strength we have, not because of anything within us, but because God will preserve their faith by His grace. So today's passage is John chapter 17, verses 11 to 12, where Jesus continues and says this. He says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Have you ever wondered how your faith would hold up if it was really 
like seriously put to the test. Maybe you've wondered what you'd do if it came down to you either confessing faith and possibly dying or denying Him and knowing that you'll live. What would you do if you were in that situation? What would you do if somebody threatened to kill you for being a Christian? Would you have the courage? Would you have the tenacity? Would you have the spine to stand strong in the faith and confess Christ even unto death? Now maybe you're the type who doubts yourself in those types of situations. I know I am. I, I wonder, what would I do? I, I, I don't know. I've never been in a situation like that before. But, but I'm afraid of what I might do if I was actually put in that situation. So maybe you're the type like me who has imagined uh, various possible trials you might encounter uh, like I am. And, and you fear the possibility that a trial may someday overwhelm and crush your faith. Maybe you've wondered, what if something, anything, causes me to turn from Christ and to lose my faith? And the answer that Scripture gives us to a question like this is actually very simple. The the answer is this, that the greater trials we face, the more grace God will bestow upon us. The greater the trials we face, the greater God's grace in those moments. Think of the trials that the disciples would face in the years to come after this prayer. I mean, they hadn't even begun to imagine how badly, uh, how fiercely they were going to be persecuted. And yet Jesus had. And so Jesus warned them at one point, saying to them in Matthew chapter 10, verses 17 to 19, He said, But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for My sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given to you you in that hour what you are to say and the same can be said of any trials that we may face he gives us the grace that we need to endure in the faith but he doesn't give us that sustaining grace until we actually need it but the greater our need the greater his providence can you remember that The greater our need for grace, the greater His providence. The troubles that the disciples were going to face would only be beginning here in very short time as Christ concludes His prayer. What can the sheep do when the shepherd is smitten and removed from their presence? How would they possibly endure without Christ being in their presence to ensure their safekeeping? He's already told them on this night that part of the plan is that He would send the Holy Spirit to be with them and to lead them into all truth. He would not leave them helpless as one might leave an orphan helpless. The presence of the Spirit of God who brings both comfort and peace and and grace in the midst of trials is to be preferred over the presence of a thousand earthly armies. It's better to have the one Spirit of God with you in those moments than it is to have a thousand armies. A thousand armies, uh, they might be able to save your physical life for a time, but the day is still coming when your life will expire. God has ordained the expiration of every one of our lives. And those armies will be helpless. They will be worthless in that day. But the Spirit of God brings 
joy and peace and grace and an increase in these graces when we need them the most. Anthony Burgess writes this. He says, Do not then measure or compare a great affliction with that little strength you have at present. No, if God makes the waters to increase, He will also provide an ark for you. And he goes on to say, if God should give you no more faith, no more patience, no more heavenly mindedness than you have at the present, you would never be able to bear such mountains and loads of trouble that God may bring on you. But God proportions your strength to your afflictions. End quote. In other words, as our need increases, His providence of grace increases. Resolve nothing then. In light of this truth, when you think about all these kinds of trials that may come and things that may be used to try to convince you to deny Christ, resolve nothing more than to endure. Whatever comes, family, whatever comes, knowing that God will be faithful to provide. He will provide you with the strength. He will provide you with the grace. He will provide you with the resolve that you need in that moment. You will persevere because God will preserve you in your faith. Whatever comes, the more sustaining grace His children need, the more He is happily able and willing to provide. He alone is able when we are unable. So let's be sure to make note of the occasion for this passage, for this part of Jesus' prayer. Jesus says that He is going out of the world. He's going to be with the Father, and He will no longer be in the world, so He will no longer be with the disciples. The disciples are going to remain in the world. They're hanging over a proverbial shark tank. And Jesus knows it. Jesus also knows, as I hope you know, friends, He knows that the world is a dangerous place for godly people to be. This world is so filled with temptations. This world is so filled with persuasive influences. It's truly miraculous that any of us would persevere until the end. The fact that anybody does is a miracle. If you want to see a miracle, go and visit a godly man. Go and visit a godly woman who's on the last leg of the journey. Someone who has seen everything that this world has to offer and they absolutely hate it. They're absolutely repulsed by all the things that this world has to offer. Jesus knew that He was going to be leaving His disciples in a place where wickedness often looks like it's prevailing, looks like it's winning the day. A place where the disciples would be constantly surrounded by temptations not only to sin, but even to walk away from the faith. The world is a place, friends, where we have so many troubles. So many troubles outside of us, so many troubles inside of us, those within us often being more subtle and more persuasive and therefore more dangerous. For three years, though, Jesus has been there with the disciples, physically in their presence, to keep them safe. To rebuke them when they needed to be rebuked. Did the disciples ever need to be rebuked? 
A lot. Uh, How many times did Peter have foot and mouth syndrome? I mean, over and over again. He was there to correct them and pull them back whenever they were being tempted. And now what? Now he's leaving. And it's going to look, on on the surface, it's going to look like he's just leaving them on their own against the world. He won't be there physically to rebuke them. He won't be there physically to restrain them and to keep them from falling into sin. It's not difficult to see why this presents a very, very serious, a very dangerous dilemma. It's, it's a very precarious situation. How many of you here today have trouble understanding why John would say in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 5.19, how many of you have trouble understanding why he says, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Does that verse make sense to you? When you look around the world, does that sound about right? It should. It should. This is the easiest thing in the world to see. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Just turn on the news. Just read some headlines about what, what's finally being exposed about what public schools are trying to do to the children in our nation. Look at the games that the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world are playing with people's lives. These things aren't new, by the way. The, the, the grooming of our children and, and the government working to increase corporate profits of pharmaceutical companies, uh, both of these things have been happening for an entire generation. It's just now being exposed. It's just now being brought out into the light. Both are cases in which evil has been permitted, at least for a time, to prevail. Back in chapter 6, immediately after uh, after feeding the uh, the 5,000 men and their families, Jesus withdrew to be alone. He went up on a mountainside. And we read this, Now when evening came, His disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But He said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive Him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Jesus permitted them. He withdrew so that they would be left alone for a time to struggle in His absence. He permitted them to go through this period of struggle without Him. He saw them in the storm, which was another miracle, by the way. And He knew the power of the storm, but He allowed them to be tossed to and fro by it for a while. He allowed them to struggle against it for a time. And this is the, the sea, by the way, we should understand, was a picture of the disciples being in the world in the biblical narratives. The, the, the scenes that take place in the, in the Sea of Galilee, those all represent scenes that would take place uh, in, in the world. They struggled. And they struggled until what happened? Until Jesus joined them once again. This is a picture of life in the world now. Two friends. One day, Christ will return for us. But until then, we are in the world. We're not to be of the world, but we are in the world. 
And we struggle. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And Jesus knew it. And Jesus knew it. He he had kept them. He had preserved them. He had protected the disciples up until this point. But now He's going to be leaving. Then what's going to happen? That's the occasion for this part of the prayer. He prays this. This is His petition. He says, Holy Father, keep them in Your name. What's interesting to note is that Jesus prays only for their spiritual safety. He does not pray for their physical safety at all. None. No word of it. He's only praying for their spiritual safety because there is nothing that even comes close to how important that is. No physical aspect even comes close to how important it is that we remain spiritually safe. He doesn't pray for them to be kept, therefore, from bodily harm. He doesn't pray for them to be kept, therefore, from trials or from being persecuted or from losing everything that they own. He prays for them to be kept through these trials that they will endure. He doesn't pray for them to be comfortable in the world or for them to be healthy or for them to have earthly riches or for them to have every possible convenience. He prays for their spiritual nourishment and their spiritual safekeeping. How many of you know that you need that? That you need daily spiritual nourishment and you need daily spiritual safekeeping. Not only every day, but every hour, every minute, every second of every day. More than you need anything. Any comfort, any convenience that this world has to offer. You need to be kept in the faith. And they would need to be preserved. Because, as we're going to see almost immediately after Jesus concludes this prayer, their flesh is so incredibly weak. Don't think that we can look down, on, down our noses on them, by the way, as if our faith is stronger than their faith. They were in Jesus' presence for three years. They knew Him personally. And yet, what would happen almost as soon as this chapter concludes? Their flesh would be revealed as being so, so weak. When Jesus is going to get arrested here, kind of momentarily, a couple of them might fight for a minute, but ultimately, what are they going to do? They're going to hightail it out of there. They're going to run for their lives. Why do they scatter? Because Jesus allowed Himself to be restrained. Jesus allowed Himself to be arrested. And He was no longer protecting or restraining the compulsions of the flesh of the disciples. But, let's remember this. Jesus had already, before this even, Jesus had already prayed for them. He had already prayed that their faith would be restored. You remember on the the night in which Jesus was betrayed, and Peter starts boasting about how he would never leave the Lord, how he would always stand by Jesus' side. He would never forsake Jesus. And how Jesus responded by saying in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when you have turned once again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knew exactly how weak their flesh was. That's why He prayed for them. 
That's why he prayed for Peter. The time that passes between the conclusion of this prayer in John chapter 17 and the death of Jesus on the following day, the disciples would face incredible trials and persecutions in that time. And they would essentially be on their own. And the weakness of their flesh would rise right to the surface. Just one little flick on the beaker and all the junk came to the top. The disciples, Peter in particular, would all be sifted like wheat. They would all scatter. They would all be broken. But Jesus had prayed for them so that their failures would not be final. And that's the only reason that their failures were not final, is that Jesus prayed for them. Here again, He prays for them. He asks the Father to keep them in His name. Now you might realize that we never uh, see the exact words uh, perseverance or preservation of the saints uh, in Scripture, just like you won't find the word Trinity in Scripture. But the doctrine of the preservation of the saints is nevertheless taught, as is the doctrine of the Trinity. Throughout the Scriptures, however, what we should see is we don't find the the phrase uh, perseverance of the saints or, or even the word preserve or perseverance so much. But what we do find is the word keep. Keep. What does it mean to be kept? Jesus is asking, keep them in your name. So what does that even mean? What does it mean to be kept? It means to be safeguarded. It means to be protected and watched over. If you think about it, Aaron's blessing, the, the great priestly blessing that Aaron was to pray over the people, the same, bene, uh, same words I use for the benediction at the end of the service, uh, they started with the words, may the Lord bless you and keep you keep you. There's that word, keep. In the words of R.C. Sproul, he says, quote, those who are saved are kept, not just today, but forever, not by their own resources, but by the power of God Himself. We do know, by the way, that the Father answers all of Jesus' prayers in the affirmative, right? How do we know that? We know that because there's only one divine will. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all share one divine will. They don't each have their own individual wills. There is one divine will. What the Father wills for, the Son wills for. What the Son desires, the Father desires. And what the Father and the Son will, the Holy Spirit also Himself wills. This is the Trinitarian theology that came out of the Nicene Creed, which is very much under fire in our generation, by the way. It is very important to, to, to understand and to study Nicene Trinitarianism because these are the things that the church has always affirmed. But there's only one divine will. And because there's only one divine will, what Jesus prays for is also going to be answered in the affirmative by the Father because they only have one will. By the way, do we know what Jesus is doing right now? He's seated on His heavenly throne. Yes, at the right hand of the Father. What's He doing there? He's interceding for us. He's praying for us right now, today. So, same thing back then. When when Jesus prays for something, it would be answered in the affirmative. So when Jesus prayed for His disciples to be kept in His name, how can we be sure, how can we know for certain that they would be? 
we can be 100% sure. We can be positive that the Father would be faithful to answer this petition in the positive because the Father and the Son are one. And there's only one divine will. One of the questions that might come up here is, what does it even mean for the Father to keep us in His name? was, Was Jesus referring to the means by which they would be preserved? In which case, was he essentially praying, uh, you know, Holy Father, keep them by the power of your name? That's possible, but, but it's also possible, if not likely, that Jesus simply prayed for their safekeeping, for their, for their uh, sustenance, the sustenance of their faith. Keep them in your name. That's it. Keep them in your name. What, what does it mean to be in his name? To be in God's name means this. It means to be counted among the elect. To be counted among the redeemed. To be counted among those who have repented and who have savingly believed in Jesus. And the disciples did. The disciples were elected unto salvation. At least the ones who remained were. They were redeemed. I don't think that we need to make uh, this statement any more complicated than that. Uh, That's what it means to be kept in His name. Jesus is simply praying to the Father that their faith would be preserved, that it would be sustained, that the Father would not let them go, that the Father would watch over them and hold on to them tight. The thing that was going to sustain their faith was not their will to continue believing, but it was the grace of It was the providence and it was the power of God. So great is God's grace and power that nobody can snatch His people out of His hand. Just as a child is safe in the arms of his father over the waters of a shark tank, so too the disciples were in the safest place that they could possibly be even though they were in the world, which is the most dangerous place they could be. But they would be kept in God's name by God's power. That's the safest place in the world to be. No matter what you're facing, that's the safest place in the world to be is in His name. And both the purpose and the result of being kept in His name would be what? Look what Jesus says. End of verse 11. He says that they may be one even as we are. Even as the Father and the Son are one, that we may be one. I fear that this verse is one of those verses that gets thrown around pretty flippantly without any context uh, and therefore ends up being a very misunderstood verse. Uh, it's, uh, it's a verse that R.C. Sproul thought was probably one of the most misunderstood verses in all of Scripture. Uh, it's often referred to um, by, or referenced by people who might be what you call, uh, might have what you call a big tent understanding of the church. Uh, the, the theological word is the ecumenical movement. It's basically trying to find all the, the, the commonalities among God's people and bring us all together. And this was a big movement in the 90s when people were uh, trying to bring Protestants and Catholics together. Uh, that's when it went a little bit too far. It's a, it's a movement that desires unity, and unity is a good thing. But its advocates were far too willing to sacrifice truth 
for the sake of unity. Uh, the reason R.C. Sproul wrote his book called Are We Together was to demonstrate that this movement had gone way too far by trying to unite Protestants with Catholics who were still denying the doctrine of salvation sola fide. Uh, salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Uh, among other things, which are central to the Gospel message. So there's no question If you look at the church, you're going to find a lot of uh, disharmony. Instead of finding unity, you'll find a lot of disunity in the church. We're, We're plagued by problems. The church is plagued by problems from within and from without, just as surely as every individual Christian is plagued by problems both within and without. But to say that Jesus' prayer here would not be answered until every church comes together and is united as one without any divisions and without any denominations, that is completely false. If you ask me, this is actually a wonderful time to have no denominational affiliations as the denominations, the major denominations in our country, are all on the verge of splitting. Uh, in fact, so I would say there, there hasn't ever been a better time in American history to be non-denominational, in my opinion. But two things. First of all, this prayer that Jesus is offering here was specifically for the disciples and not for the church throughout this age, uh, the, the invisible church throughout this age. So we're not still waiting for the Father to answer this prayer in the affirmative. He answered it 2,000 years ago. But secondly, the invisible church does have unity. We are one. Throughout the course of history, there has been unity among the church because of things like the Nicene Creed, by the way. Uh, Because despite there being differences on secondary matters, which is why we have denominations, every person who has ever repented and savingly believed in Christ has been reconciled with God and has been brought into perfect union with God and is thereby brought into union with all other believers. The invisible church throughout history. The unity that the church has transcends denominational or geographic lines. It transcends every cultural, ethnic, or social boundary as well. Everyone who has been reconciled to God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, has union with the Father, has unity with the Father through the Son, by the Spirit, and therefore also has union with the rest of the body of Christ as well. The disciples would have this union, and the church throughout the age would have this union. This prayer was certainly answered. The Father would keep the disciples and all of the redeemed in His name, by His power, for His glory. If He didn't, if He didn't act to preserve the church, to preserve His people, the disciples would have been surely lost. And so too would would you and I. We would not stand a chance, friends. We wouldn't have even the slightest chance of enduring and persisting and, and being preserved in our faith if God Himself were not actively working, sustaining, pouring out His grace upon us and keeping us in His name. This is why Jesus brings up Judas here, by the way. Was Judas lost because Jesus failed? 
Is it possible for Jesus to fail? Don't ever say that. Perish that thought. Judas was not lost because Jesus failed to keep him. In fact, it was actually just the opposite. The reason that Judas Iscariot apostatized was because Jesus wasn't keeping him. The reason that Jesus asks the Father now to keep the disciples is because Jesus has been the one up until this point keeping them while He was with them. So why did only Judas turn on Jesus? Why didn't more of the disciples join Judas when he turned on Jesus? And the answer is because Jesus was keeping them, but he wasn't keeping Judas Iscariot. That's why Judas was lost. Judas was never truly found. Judas never believed to begin with. And it's for this reason that Judas can never be looked at as an example or some kind of a template for apostasy. He's not proof that somebody can walk away from the faith. Rather, Judas Iscariot is proof that without God's sustaining grace, we will walk away. And in fact, we never will have believed in the first place. All along, Judas loved himself, and it turns out at the end that he hates Jesus. And that's where our flesh would lead us to also if God were not preserving us. Judas never savingly believed in Jesus. He was never born again. The only reason that he followed Jesus was to fulfill a specific prophecy that comes from Psalm chapter 40, uh, Psalm 41, verse 9, where the psalmist writes, "...even my close friend in whom I trust, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me." Judas is allowed to follow in order that that prophecy may be fulfilled. But the point is that if God did not preserve all of the disciples, if He didn't keep all of them, keep them in His name, they would all have walked away the same way that Judas did. And so would you. And so would I. We have nothing, nothing to boast of in our salvation. Nothing to boast of except the grace of God. None of us gets any credit. None of us gets any glory for enduring, for for persevering. God is the one who perseveres. We persevere because He does. We endure with Him because He endures with us. We continue to abide in Christ because He continues to keep and abide with us. If God's grace did not keep you, if God's grace did not sustain your faith day by day, moment by moment, there is no doubt that you would deny Christ. Every single one of us would deny Christ as quickly as Peter did when his faith got put to the fire. If God's grace did not keep us, we would all be lost before we even got out to the car after service today. But here's God's promise. He will keep you. He will hold you fast in His name. He will bless you. He will nourish you. He will sustain you if you are truly His. The question then becomes, how do you know if you're truly His? How do you know if He is truly keeping you in His name, in Christ, believing in Christ? How do you know? And the answer to that question starts with whether or not you believe in Jesus savingly. 
See, it's possible to know a lot of things intellectually about Jesus. There are atheists who know all kinds of facts. They've watched the History Channel, apparently, for days on end, and they know all these facts about Jesus. But the question is not, do you know things about Jesus? The question is, do you believe in Jesus savingly? That's what it has to start with. Let me put it this way. If you were to die tonight, and God asked you at the pearly gates... By what merit should I allow you into heaven? What would your answer be? How would you even start to respond to that? Because there's only one right answer to that question. That answer is that you have no merit. You don't deserve anything good from God. But Christ does. And Christ died for sinners. And you recognize that you are a great sinner who needs a great Savior whose merit can be transferred to you, can be credited or imputed to you. Do you believe that you deserve anything good from God because of the kind of life that you've lived? Do you think that maybe you deserve something good from God because your good good deeds outweigh your, your bad deeds? I hope that your answer is no to those questions. Because if your answer is yes to those questions, you are as lost as Judas was. But if you see, if you believe, if you understand that you you have no merit, you don't deserve anything good from God, if you see that you only deserve God's wrath, but you believe that God's wrath against your sin was satisfied by Jesus' death in your place, then you can know that you're saved. But, understand this. Understand that there is a difference between knowing that Jesus has merit and you don't, and actually believing. You can know all these things about Jesus. The question is, do you believe? And the way that that question is answered is by the way that you live your life. There was a time when Jesus was warning that there would be many who would think that they were saved. But who weren't? We, we read of Jesus talking of the day of judgment. He says this in Matthew 7, uh, verses 21 to 23. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. If you believe that Christ died in your place and that you therefore belong to Him, your life should also be marked by obedience. Or at least a desire, a burning desire, an increasing desire to walk in obedience to him. Notice as you consider that passage from Matthew where Jesus is warning about those who thought they were saved but weren't. Notice the merit that those people claim. They point to all the things that they did, not to what Jesus did for them, but to the things that they did. But not only that, but their, mar- their lives were marked by lawlessness. By lawlessness. Which means, in a nutshell, a refusal to obey. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. This is talking about obedience. A general apathy 
toward their sin is the best that you can say that these people had. Now, I'm not going to ask you if you sin, because you do. We all do. The person who denies that sin is within them does not have the truth in them. They are deceived. But here's what I am going to ask you. Okay, so you sin. Do you care? Does it bother you? Does it, does it touch your conscience at all? Do you find yourself ever grieving over your sin? Wondering how it's possible that you could love something that you hate and hate something that you love so much? And wanting to be freed from that sin and praying and begging to God that He would free you from that sin? Have you ever been there? Do you find yourself grieving and striving against sin? Striving to walk in obedience? Does your faith bear fruit? Fruit like obedience. Fruit like repentance. There are many other indicators that a person is is saved, but given what's been said in our text at hand today, I would only draw your attention to one more, uh, one more test of your faith, one more test of salvation, which is that you not only have a love for God, but that you also have a love for God's people. 1 John 3.14 says this, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. Who are the brethren? It's church family. It's Christians. Do you not only love the Savior who died for sinners, but do you also love the other sinners for whom the Savior died? Part of the Christian journey involves learning to love the things that God loves and learning to hate the things that God hates. You know what God loves a lot? He loves His people a lot. He loves His people a lot, which is why He sent Jesus to die in our place, to live a perfect life, and to die in our place. The disciples, and by extension, the church throughout this age, would be kept in His name by the power of God. The world is a, a crazy and dangerous place for the godly man or the godly woman to abide. So great are the temptations that we face as soon as we even walk out the door here, friends. But greater still are the dangers within because every single one of us still carries around an old nature, a flesh nature that would tempt us and that would entice us to sin and to sin and to sin again and again and again. But greater is He who is in us than who is in the world. We aren't safe in our salvation because of anything about us. We're safe in our salvation because God is faithful to His promises. And He will be faithful to complete the work that He has begun in us. We would be completely hopeless if our salvation depended on us keeping ourselves. But God is able. And God alone is able to keep us in His name. And yet, we must in one sense live as if keeping ourselves is our responsibility, right? We have to avail ourselves to what we call the ordinary means of grace, things that God has ordained, things that God has given us in order to keep us, in order to sustain our faith, in order to help our faith grow, and in order to help us grow in Christ's likeness. 
The person who misses church regularly, for example, and who thus isn't availing themselves to the preaching, the regular preaching of God's Word, can only blame themselves. They can't blame God for not keeping them. They can only blame themselves if their faith grows weak or if their faith starts getting closer and closer to crossing over into unbelief. When all is said and done, those who are saved are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and they will never and they can never lose their salvation if they are truly born again. Those who appear to lose it, in truth, never had it. All who are truly saved will persevere because God, who is able, will preserve them. Until the day we die, He will continue to add as much oil to the flames of our hearts as He knows that we need to keep the flame of our faith burning brightly for all the world to see. If you look at the world, if you look at the headlines, if you look at the things that are going on around the world right now, you might get the sense that we have some really tough times coming straight for us, friends. But here's all I would say to you. Hold on to Jesus. Hold fast to our confession of the faith. Whatever comes, whatever trials, whatever difficulties you may face, knowing that you will remain safe. You will be preserved in your faith because He's holding on to you and keeping you in His name. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word, for the way that it instructs us. We thank You that Your Word sanctifies us and that Your Word is truth. And we pray, O Lord, that You would teach us to believe, even when we might find things difficult to believe. Father, we believe the testimony of Your Word that You are faithful to Your people. That You are faithful to the end. That You will never leave us or forsake us. But that You will complete the work that You have begun. Teach us, O Lord, to live our lives in light of that truth. Give us hope when we feel like our hope would be lost. Give us strength and courage in accordance with our needs. We thank you and bless your name for your providence, for giving not only your Son and saving us by his name and his work, but also for sustaining our faith day by day in accordance with our needs. We thank you for these things and ask, O oh Lord, that you, can, that you would teach us to live confidently in light of the truths of your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.